0: Welcome to Self Satisfied. I'm Britta.
1: And I'm Cassie.
0: We're going to skip over how our weeks were this week because we already did that in part one. We're just going to jump right into our explanations of the effects of trauma on your body and brain and treatments for trauma. So, how does trauma affect us? in the long term. Cassie is going to tell us a little bit about the effects on our mind.
1: So I just want to start off by mentioning research shows that all forms of trauma have a strong correlation with substance abuse. They've done studies of adolescents that are in treatment for addiction and over 70% of those adolescents cite histories of trauma exposure. Teens who have been sexually abused or assaulted are three times more likely to abuse substances than their peers. So trauma, particularly early in your life, is a clear risk factor for addiction, which as we said, is a mental health disorder in and of itself. So a big one that you typically hear is PTSD which stands for post-traumatic stress disorder. It's believed that approximately 3.6% of the global population suffers from PTSD, which seems like a low percentage, but that's around 324 million people worldwide. So that's a lot. (laughs) This is something that's often associated with combat or sexual assault However, there's a lot of other things that can cause this. In one study of adults with PTSD, 48% of the participants were victims of sexual abuse before the age of 18. On top of combat or sexual assault, this can be caused by major car accidents plane crashes, things of that nature, natural disasters. They did a study after Hurricane Sandy and found that approximately 14.5% of New Jersey residents suffered from PTSD six months later, Uh, death of a loved one, major illness or injury, school shootings, terrorist attacks, traumatic childbirth experiences, Witnessing violence or traumatic events. This can be witnessing the event firsthand or secondhand. Learning about trauma that happened to a loved one. Graphic news coverage can be a risk factor for developing PTSD. The National Center for PTSD actually did a post-9-11 study that found that In the three to five days following the attacks on the World Trade Center, participants who watched the most TV showed more substantial reactions than those who watched less. So, incarceration, high-stress occupations. This is also known as secondary or vicarious trauma. On average, 30% of first responders suffer from PTSD. I just wanted to share, like, a personal Story here, I guess. My brother, who's a correctional officer, was attacked by an inmate, and he's also exposed to constant violence at work. And that's something I know has created some severe issues there. And also, my ex was a social worker, especially. As- exposed to violence, abuse, neglect and suicide through the families he works with. I'm I'm not a mental health professional. I'm not going to diagnose like say either of them have PTSD, but I can say for certain that being in those, just in those environments can be extremely troubling on your psyche and have a lot of impact. It's important to note that not everyone who experiences trauma will develop PTSD, even if it's the same event experienced between multiple people. Risk factors for PTSD, if you have experienced prior traumatic events, this can kind of make you more susceptible there is a link that they've looked into of a possible genetic predisposition but this is something that hasn't really been proven limited social support following the event multiple traumas at the same time or within a short span of times and this doesn't it doesn't have to be multiple big traumas within the same time it can be one big T and several little Ts or something like that. So to be diagnosed, your symptoms have to last more than a month and be severe enough to interfere with daily functioning. And some of the symptoms are flashbacks, nightmares, isolation, disassociation, emotional detachment, heightened anxiety, avoidance of trauma reminders, and a risk of suicide. They say that risk of suicide is 5.3 times higher than that of people without PTSD and up to 13% times higher if there are additional comorbidities, and this is according to the National Center for PTSD, which is where I got a lot of this research from. There's also CPTSD, and this is complex post-traumatic stress disorder. So the difference between the two is PTSD is usually experienced after a single traumatic event, whereas CPTSD is the result of repeated ongoing trauma. When you experience long-term trauma, your body develops coping mechanisms or habits to protect yourself. So, trust issues, constantly expecting danger or something negative to happen. This can be caused by ongoing domestic abuse or violence, repeatedly witnessing violence or abuse, growing up with prolonged exposure to domestic abuse, war zone, gang violence, etc., experiencing abuse or neglect as a child, torture or kidnapping. And some of the risk factors are the same as PTSD, but there's also trauma occurred at an early age or inflicted by someone close to you or someone you trusted inflicted by someone you see regularly those with cptsd will also experience the same symptoms as ptsd but typically they'll experience more whereas someone with ptsd may experience them separately or fewer and they'll also experience them much more severely and intensely. Long-term difficulties maintaining relationships is another one. Difficulty managing or regulating emotions. Feelings of worthlessness or guilt. Physical symptoms such as headaches, chest pain, stomach aches, etc. And then once again suicidal thoughts. The treatments for these two are similar, but CPTSD also includes skill. Skill building, so learning to trust others, addressing feelings of worthlessness, and creating supportive relationships, etc. And the treatment is also more intense, frequent, and extensive than PTSD. Another result of trauma is BPD. This is also known as borderline personality disorder. There's also a possible genetic predisposition for this, but this once again has not been proven, and there's conflicting evidence on that. Researchers have done MRI scans on people with BPD, which revealed that in many people, three parts of their brain were either smaller than expected or had unusual levels of activity. And these areas are the amygdala, which plays an important role in regulating emotions, especially the more negative emotions, such as fear, aggression, and anxiety. The hippocampus, which helps regulate behavior and self-control. And the orbital frontal cortex, which is involved in planning and decision-making. So the development of all three of these particular areas of the brain are affected by your early upbringing. Some more risk factors are if you're the victim of emotional, physical, or sexual abuse, you have exposure to long-term fear or distress as a child, being neglected by one or both parents growing up with another family member who had a serious mental health condition, such as bipolar disorder or a drink or an alcohol or drug misuse problem, difficult parental relationships, and other traumatic situations that have caused unresolved fear, anger, and distress from childhood. In this, the symptoms are emotional instability, so suffers. Of BPD may experience a range of often intense negative emotions, severe mood swings over a short span of time. These mood swings can be unpredictable and change during different times of the day. So, some people have said that they feel better in the mornings and some in the evenings, and it's just different for everyone. And then, frequent suicidal thoughts and ideations. Another one is impulsive behavior. So there's the impulse to self harm, such as cutting or burning yourself with like a cigarette and stuff like that. Impulsive suicidal thoughts or intent or attempts, reckless or irresponsible activities, such as binge drinking, drug misuse, spending or gambling sprees, promiscuous behaviors such as unprotected sex with strangers, um, things like that. Another symptom is intense but unstable relationships with others. Fears that people will abandon you when you need them the most. Constantly texting or phoning somebody, calling in the middle of the night physically clinging to somebody and refusing to let go, threats to harm or kill yourself if they leave you. On the flip side, it can also result in feeling that people are getting too close and smothering you. And this provokes intense fear and anger, emotionally withdrawing, rejecting others, and verbal abuse. This may result in unstable love-hate relationships. People with BPD have a very rigid black-and-white view on relationships, so either everything is perfect and the person you're with is wonderful and amazing, or the relationship is doom and that person is terrible, basically the worst, and they're essentially unable or unwilling to accept gray area. So it's kind of like a go-away, please-don't-go state of mind. One more symptom is disturbed patterns of thinking or perception or also known as cognitive distortions or perceptual distortions. This includes upsetting thoughts, thinking that you're a terrible person, or feeling like you do not exist. So when experiencing these, they may seek reassurance that these are not true. There's also brief episodes of strange experiences that people with BPD have had, such as hearing voices outside of your head for minutes at a time, and then also prolonged episodes of abnormal experiences, such as hallucinations or hearing voices, distressing beliefs or delusional thoughts that no one can talk you out of. For example, your family is secretly trying to kill you. These particular beliefs are a sign of psychosis or a psychotic episode, and it's a sign that you're becoming more unwell. So if you or a loved one are experiencing the symptoms of, of psychosis, it's extremely important to seek medical treatment as soon as possible because that's not something that really fixes itself. Definitely reach out if you are going through that. There's an internationally recognized assessment for determining whether someone is suffering from BPD, which I'm not going to go through right now, but I will... We'll post a link to it. I actually, I, I actually went through it with my psychiatric nurse at one point because we had talked about what was wrong with me, <laughs> which I don't have BPD. I have, you know, other mental health disorders. So once diagnosed, it's recommended to tell close family or friends and people that you trust about your diagnosis. And there's a few reasons for this. One is many symptoms affect your relationships and involving or making them aware may aid in treatment. And the second reason is that those who are close to you can remain alert for signs and behaviors that indicate an incoming or current crisis. I'm going to talk about how
0: Trauma affects our body. I'm sure you guys have heard like trauma is stored in the body or there's a pretty popular book about trauma called The Body Keeps the Score. So what does that mean that trauma is stored in the body? Basically, when you go through a traumatic event and don't fully process it, Cassie mentioned this earlier, it's stored in your brain and causes actual physical changes to your brain. For instance, it shrinks the part of your brain that is responsible for memories and will increase activity in the parts that are responsible for like emotional things. So you might experience emotional dysregulation, but it's shrinking the part responsible for memories because it is literally trying to forget what happened. Your brain is so overwhelmed by working so hard not to think about this damaging and terrifying event or slew of unsavory events, and basically doesn't seem to be able to keep up with that task and all the other things that it does to keep your body doing good body things. On top of that, it causes stress, which can have all kinds of unsavory effects long-term, heart problems, autoimmune issues, chronic pain, etc. I've seen some personal stories of people who thought they had some mysterious like autoimmune issue or chronic health issue and after going to therapy and realizing they have trauma and processing that like physically felt much better because again their brain was putting so much of its willpower towards like don't think about that thing that happened when you were six Mm -hmm. that it was not doing the things that it should be doing to keep them healthy. Also think back to the times that you've had a trauma response out of nowhere. So like when you're triggered by something, what reacts first? Do you think typically, when you're triggered by something unexpectedly, do you think, oh, this reminds me of that time my dad did this thing? Or does your body react? Does your heart rate elevate and you get a little bit sweaty and you may feel faint Or whatever, because there's a stimulus that you have not even... Mentally associated with anything, but your body and your mind recognize it as something that scares you. That's because your body is recognizing that and jumping to protect you before your mind can even process it. I know that one of my most significant responses as a result of my traumas is that when I am trying to communicate things, I almost go nonverbal. It's a lot better. I, I had always blamed it on ADHD and it's a lot better since I've been medicated. But it used to be like when I was upset about something and would try to tell somebody I was upset, my brain would essentially turn into TV static and I would freeze up and I would get like to the point where it almost felt like I would pass out from just being overwhelmed with that situation. It was a long time before I realized that I was actually doing that because I was afraid of what kind of reaction that communication would garner. Those types of responses are believed to be somatic memories, which Cassie mentioned earlier, where your body is remembering things your brain is trying not to. Things like palpitations, headaches, stomach problems, fatigue, feeling woozy, insomnia, and sexual pain or dysfunction can all be caused by trauma. Of course, always see a doctor if you experience these things with regularity uh, to rule out any other causes. Like in my case, many people can't immediately connect something that triggers them to a traumatic event. So it can be something as trivial as a painting with the same color scheme as a picture in your childhood bedroom where something awful happened to you. If you experience these kinds of memories, there are a few things you can try to help yourself get through it, such as grounding techniques to remind yourself that you're in the present and you're safe, practicing mindfulness and meditation, breathing exercises to calm the body, like inhaling for four, holding for six, and exhaling for eight seconds, and then moving your body Like literally shaking it off. I actually just saw a TikTok before we started recording where a woman was suggesting that you sumo squat and plant your feet on the floor. And basically with the soles of your feet flat to the floor, shake your whole body. And that will cause your body to go into a more relaxed state, which is a way to, I guess, release your trauma. And I'm sure there's more about how body is stored in the trauma in that very popular book, but I have not had a chance or the focus to read that or anything.
1: So we're going to go over some of the treatments that people use, different methods that people use to help them cope with their trauma. So one method is psychotherapy. And there are multiple different kinds that have shown to be beneficial to those who have suffered traumatic events. One is cognitive behavioral therapy, which is probably the most common therapy that we typically hear about. It's also called CBT. And this focuses on challenging and changing your cognitive distortions. So your thoughts, beliefs, attitudes towards something and behaviors, improving emotional regulation, and the development of coping strategies that target solving current problems. So it's essentially like you're talking, you'll talk about your issues and come up with, you know, we talked about the Socratic questions in the past, come up with a different process of thinking about those and a different way to react to things. The next one is dialectical behavior therapy, also called DBT. Um, DBT was actually created specifically for people who had BPD, and it's, it's shown to be useful in... In treating mood disorders, suicidal ideations, and behavioral patterns such as self harm and substance abuse. This is essentially where you work with your therapist to accept and, you know, work on changing your behaviors and beliefs. DBT was developed for sufferers of BPD and to treat that, but They've adapted it to treat a lot of other mental health conditions, and it's really great for people who have difficulty with emotional regulation or have self-destructive behaviors, so eating disorders, substance abuse, suicidal ideations, and it's also frequently used to treat post-traumatic stress disorder. It is basically, it involves a lot of group therapy, so Patients are taught behavioral skills in a group setting. You get individual therapy with your trained professional, and which is essentially like you learn the behavioral skills and adapt those to your personal life, and phone coaching, where you have. You know, you have your therapist number and you can call them and receive guidance on coping with difficult situations that you're currently in. A lot of it focuses around mindfulness and living in the moment. So paying attention to what happens inside of you, your thoughts, feelings, sensations, or impulses. Another therapy that we don't hear of as much is cognitive processing therapy or cpt and this is used specifically for post traumatic stress disorder and related conditions and it includes some elements of cognitive behavioral therapy the whole idea behind it is it conceptualizes ptsd as a disorder that you don't recover from. So, in CPT therapy, there is four essential parts to it: educating the patient about the specific post-traumatic stress disorder symptoms and the way treatment is going to help them, informing the patient about their thoughts and feelings, and teaching them lessons about how to develop skills to challenge or question their own thoughts regarding the trauma. And helping the patient recognize changes to their beliefs that happened after going through the traumatic event. Typically, this is done in 12 sessions. There's also group sessions involved in it as well. Where they have, you know, several people who have also... Who are also suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder. Kind of going through that as well. There's also neurological therapies. Some of the neurological therapies are, um, eye movement desensitization and reprocessing, also known as EMDR. EMDR is based on the idea that negative thoughts, feelings, and behaviors are the result of unprocessed memories. So essentially it's where your eyes move in the, um, oh my god can you explain this
0: so you think what what i've heard about emdr is basically there's a way that your eyes move naturally when you're doing things like the example i saw was walking so like how when you're stressed out and you're or you're all amped up go for a walk and you feel a little bit better it's because your eyes naturally to avoid i don't know tripping or running into a tree or something they're looking at your surroundings. So they're going side to side. So when you do EMDR, it's essentially... Your therapist is having you move your eyes similarly by asking you to follow their finger or a dot on a screen and you move your eyes side to side while you discuss the therapy and mm-hmm. that eye movement is going to cause that same kind of calming reaction in your body while you're discussing these terrible traumatic events that happened to you and then instead of associating the trauma with you know these flight fight freeze etc responses, you're associating it with a more calm response, Mm -hmm. I think. (laughs) (laughs) Don't quote me, don't at me. This is actually,
1: like, it's a pretty controversial therapy method because the effects of it haven't really been proven. I've spoken to people who have done EMDR therapy before, and It's very intensive. It's very, can be very upsetting. One of my close friends I had talked to about it just because I had kind of looked into it when dealing with my own trauma. Like maybe it was something that I should ask about. And I knew that she had gone through that. So I asked her opinion on it. And one thing she said was EMDR helped so much And it helped more than probably anything that I have done in the past. However, I would never do it again because it pulls out a lot of those really, really difficult negative memories and it it can be very upsetting and it's very, very hard to go through. So a lot of people feel like it's very effective, but it is extremely emotional and extremely in-depth, I guess.
0: Right. Like you said that, you know, the the science behind it basically is controversial. But even if it's not working because the eye movements or whatever, maybe a lot of it is just working because they are talking about their trauma in depth and therefore being forced to process it, right? Maybe it's kind of a placebo sort of with the eye Mm -hmm. movements. I think, um, and and I don't know, I don't don't know.
1: I don't know what it is. However, I do know personally that I have spoken with people who have found it very effective.
0: Right. And whatever reason it's effective, that's all that really matters. You know, that exactly. it is. <laughs> exactly. There's
1: also one called brain spotting. So, like, with EMDR and brain spotting, both of these utilize bilateral stimulation, So, which is essentially any stimulation that occurs on both sides of your body brain spotting they use bilateral sounds which are sounds that are designed to play alternately on each headphone many clients will find these sounds to be relaxing and a specific soundtrack can naturally evoke certain emotions and memories honestly when i listened to this it made me highly uncomfortable like when I listened to the alternating and I don't know why, <laughs> but it, it did. It made me very uncomfortable for some reason. Um, but there is a little bit like they, they also use eye movements and stuff in the brain spotting therapy too. Another one is tapping. So tapping is also known as the emotional freedom technique. So, so essentially it's similar to acupuncture, whereas acupuncture uses needles, but this is like, there are certain spots on your body where pressure will help calm you. So when you're in this moment, you can tap on those specific spots, which a lot of people find this very effective. I know this is also something that people use a lot for ADHD and anxiety, not related to trauma. And it's been very effective. Also, pharmaceutical. pharmaceuticals. How do you say this? Pharmacotherapy? (laughs) Also, a lot of people find antidepressants, anti-anxiety medications, and some, in extreme cases, antipsychotics. Very effective when treating... The effects of trauma. There's coping mechanisms as well. Britta me- mentioned earlier meditation and breathing exercises, but also raising awareness about the trauma that you've experienced can be helpful. Limiting media and social media consumption about traumatic events or related to the traumatic event that you've experienced. Positive self-care, like good nutrition, exercise, and sleep. Connecting community or support systems. So if you don't have family or friends nearby, also finding support groups similar to what you're going through. Nature immersion is a big one. Journaling and gratitude lists are also ones that were listed as being very effective in this. And I know I use journaling a lot when it comes to coping, and it just helps me get my thoughts all out on the page and figure out what...
0: So psychodynamic therapy is another option. This one focuses on your developmental history and childhood experiences. It emphasizes understanding the meaning of your trauma and looks at how it has affected your sense of self and relationships and what has been lost. It seems like this is most helpful when you don't fully recognize your trauma and it focuses more on recognizing harmful behaviors you might exhibit as a result of it. I think this is kind of where I started with my therapist with discussing what I was doing, like the actions I was taking, the responses I was having, and then what feelings or event. I thought I would be avoiding with those responses, and then it led to me realizing that I'd been disavowing a lot of my trauma and not accepting how much it's impacted me, and maybe I still do that, according to therapist Cassie over there. <laughs>
1: uh, <laughs> not a mental health professional, but just, uh, just wanted to lay it out there for you, honey. <laughs>
0: Some people might also displace their trauma and lash out at family members or other people that they felt were to blame that were not actually to blame because they feel guilty or ashamed with themselves. For instance, like being angry at a sibling for not protecting you from abuse when they were a child as well. Like your 12-year-old sibling could not do much to save your 10-year-old self from your parents, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but you might still be angry at that sibling because those feelings towards yourself are too much to cope with. The next one is exposure therapy. It's natural that when something awful happens to us that we are going to want to avoid things that remind us of that trauma. It's a form of self-preservation. So if you're attacked in a bar, you may stop going out to bars. If you are in an abusive relationship, you might stop getting into relationships and stay single. However, avoiding situations doesn't give you the chance to see that they're not always as dangerous as you think they are and could also prolong or intensify symptoms of PTSD. The goal of exposure therapy is to help you confront those fears safely to help reduce your fear and anxiety. There are a few different types of exposure therapy and vivo is direct confrontation, so going to a place associated with the trauma or taking actions to overcome specific anxieties. Like if you have severe social anxiety, your therapist would tell you to go make a public speech, like give a toast at a wedding or something like that, visit a bar where something bad happened, etc. Imaginal is where you're guided to imagine feared scenarios. This would be used when it's not ideal or possible or safe to actually expose yourself to something. So like somebody who experienced trauma in the form of combat might be reimagining their time in the service with their therapist in their office. Interceptive was originally created to help with panic disorder, but has also been successful with PTSD. The idea is to confront the somatic response by causing them in a safe and controlled manner. Like your therapist might ask you to basically hyperventilate on purpose. So, you know, breathing very quickly to cause yourself to hyperventilate and kind of give you anxiety. That way they can show you tools to help you calm yourself back down. Mm -hmm. And then prolonged exposure combines all three types of those stages in multiple sessions. Group therapy is exactly what it sounds like. It's sharing your experiences with people dealing with similar things. If you're going to do group therapy for trauma, you need to be mindful to choose a group that's appropriate for where you are in your healing journey. So if you're in a safety or victim phase, you would focus on a You would choose a group that's focusing on self-care or coping skills. If you're in the mourning or survivor phase, you would choose a group that focuses on telling your story. And if you're in the reconnection or thriving stage, you would choose a group that's focused on creating connection. Hypnotherapy is using hypnosis. There are a few different kinds of this as well. Memory regression would be reliving the moments in various states of intensity The therapist would cultivate what's called a dual awareness so that the individual can experience the event in their state of hypnosis without repression or dissociation, but know that they are safe in the present. So while they are reimagining this, essentially, it's kind of an exposure therapy to the next level, I guess. But the therapist would also be able to tell them while they're in this hypnotic state that these memories seem really real, what you're experiencing feels really real, but you are here now in my office and you're safe. That way they, you know, don't go into a full panic. Reframing or restructuring is reliving the moments but giving them better outcomes, like an abused child having an adult come to protect and support them. This allows for empowerment and can help Neutralize unhelpful trauma responses. This is kind of like I think you spoke when we talked about healing your inner child. Yeah. Like talking yeah, about I was say. yourself coming in to rescue mm-hmm. you. So this would be similar to that. And then there's this one I found really interesting anchoring resource states. So once the memory has been restructured and you created a better environment within that trauma, so you know, you have your person who comes in and helps you through that moment in whatever way and now you're associating it with these new feelings of empowerment, safety, and calm, you can create a physical action to associate with those feelings like pressing your fingers together. That way when you are in a trauma response, when you're feeling triggered by something, you would press those two fingers together and it would help you activate that resource state and naturally bring you back to a calm level so that was a pretty interesting one Mm
1: -hmm. i've i saw some of those on tiktok and i've used them before where like holding your wrist Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. i think you sent me something on tiktok where you're like Tugging on your eardrum, or not your eardrums.
0: <laughs> We're so tired. Stick your fingers in your ears, get in there, yank those bitches out. Then you won't think about your trauma because you're in terrible pain, physical pain.
1: <laughs> if anyone does that, we are not liable.
0: I think, but I think what you're talking but about. Like, Yeah, I think what you're talking about is more almost like tapping, kind of, because it's more like activating. certain points on your body Mm -hmm. this is like where you would purposely make a motion and it could be anything it could be tugging your ear squeezing your wrist pressing two fingers together touching your nose Mm -hmm. blinking your eyeballs i don't know whatever you want it to be but uh this is something that you purposely associate in that hypnotic state Mm -hmm. with a feeling of being calm and empowered that way when you are about to go off the rails you can employ that that action and the idea and you know forever the skeptic over here so i'm like does that really work but the idea is that pressing your fingers together in the moment when you're fearful of of whatever whatever response is happening pressing your fingers together would almost immediately calm you down because your brain is now wired to associate pressing those fingers together with feeling good and calm. And I think that the like the wrist squeezing and the the ear tugging is more of a like these are points on your body that just help you feel calm. I could be wrong though. I could be wrong about I don't everything. know. Everything in this episode could be false. You guys don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Nobody knows. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> all right, so that is all we have on trauma. We do have a couple of listener bright spots this week. The first one is Amanda says that she finally got to meet her nieces and her nephew. Shakes fist at pandemic. (laughs) (laughs) It's
1: very frustrating. I understand. So. Um, Andy says, my bright spot was that my brother was able to attend Thanksgiving yesterday after getting COVID last week, thanks to his vaccine. Louder for anyone who can't hear me in the back, because they're still doing their research. He was confirmed not contagious in roughly three days and was fully asymptomatic by the
0: time Thanksgiving rolled around. So that is awesome. That is amazing. Very important that if you're able to that you go get that vaccine yes. and protect the people yes. that cannot and vaccines work
1: people and they are safe <laughs>
0: yeah fda approved <laughs> right, even. right, right,
1: right.
0: <laughs> they do not change your genetics whatsoever
1: and they're not going to make you magnetic yeah <laughs> <laughs> damn it (laughs) oh i was hoping for it i wanted to become (laughs) Magneto.
0: all right so next week we are going to talk about suicide prevention so we will catch you guys then have a great week yeah god damn it dude i stole it again i do it every week (laughs) have a great week